Good morning. Good to see you all today. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And just to kind of bring us up to speed, we're, we've been trekking through Romans for a little while now, and Paul has laid out the tendencies of mankind, not only the tendencies, but who we are and how we are. We're sinners. The Bible makes very clear that we're sinners and that there's nothing we can do about that sin. And if left to ourselves, we would never seek after God on our own uh, because we're bent toward sin. He handles through the first couple of chapters that issue and begins to make known to the Jews and make known to Gentiles alike that there is nothing that can be done. You can't be good enough. You can't observe the law. Uh, None of these things will set you right before God. You can't begin today to do the right things and do the right things for the rest of your life and expect to go to heaven. It just doesn't work that way. Because if you were to never sin again from this day onward, you still would not cover the sin of Adam, nor would you cover your past sins. He continues to move on through the book of Romans, and he begins to put forward Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus, and the grace of God, and how God justifies us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He removes every argument that people lay out, that the Jews lay out, that the Gentiles lay out. He removes every, every argument and says, this is the only thing that stands. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the only thing that you can hope in and find forgiveness in, is in Him, in His work, and in His power. Comes to chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to have peace with God. We're enemies with God. And there's no other way to have peace with God except through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have been justified by faith. Not justified by anything that I've done, but justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And that justification is God's declaration that you are righteous. Not because you do things well, but because your hope is in Christ. He's explained that more and more all through chapter 5. And now we've come to chapter 6. In chapters 3 through 5, he's laying out the forgiveness and acceptance with God grounded in God's grace. And here in chapter 6, he's saying that grace has another function. Grace not only saves you. Grace not only brings to you forgiveness, but grace has power. For you to overcome sin. 
I want us to think about that today. I've entitled my message today, Not Under Law, But Under Grace. Not Under Law, But Under Grace. We find in verse 14, uh, the end of last week's passage that we looked at, where he sums up what he's saying, but it introduces a new question in chapter 15, a question he's already been asked, and he puts it forward. Verse 14, chapter 6 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will not dominate you. If you are a Christian, then that's who he's speaking to. He is speaking to those who have been justified. He's speaking to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. That's who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to people who uh, have not done that because they, they are still under the power of sin. They're still under the dominion of sin. But those who are in Christ, who have sought Him, who have believed on Him, uh, they uh, are, sin no longer has dominion over them. He says that in verse 6 of chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I've described that as when it says there that it might be brought to nothing as the power of the cross rendered sin powerless or idle, if you will. Idle. It's a better word. What Christ did on the cross is he disengaged the gears of sin. I'll use an illustration. I won't say chicken tractor because I had more people come up to me and say, what's a chicken tractor? But this is East Texas, so I'm going to say that 75% of y'all have trailers. And none of you have gone and sat out in your trailer and tried to crank it. It, it has no power of its own. But if you back your truck up and hitch that trailer to your truck, that trailer is going to move. Sin in the life of a believer has been rendered idle like a trailer that has no locomotion of its own. You as a believer have to back up to it, hitch up to it, and drag it along with you. He says, sin will have no dominion over you. Not only in the future, but now. Since. Why is that? Why does sin no longer have power over you, have dominion over you? It says, it gives the reason why. Since you're not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to not be under law, but to be under grace? Notice the preposition under. Hupo is the Greek word. It's a preposition that speaks of of pressing down or being over something and being in dominion over it. This word is giving us an illustration in and of itself. Before you knew Christ, you were under the law, if you will, because the law lets you know this is sin. But now we're under grace. What does that mean? It's important to know because there's a lot of people that get that wrong. And so I want us to think about that thought today. Think about what does it mean to not be under the law but under grace? Another question that I hope that gets answered in this is what does God intend grace to do? Grace saves us from sin. It's the power of God. God offers grace to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So grace forgives. But what else does grace do? What else does God intend for grace to do? What does it mean to not be under law but under grace? Let me give you three things it doesn't mean first. Okay? First is this. It doesn't mean that there's no rules. It doesn't mean that there's no rules. Uh, Grace, uh, the law, uh, is not removed in such a way that there's no rules. You know, a lot of people think, well, rules were for the Old Testament. You know, they had all these laws that they had to abide by and to uh, be governed by and so forth. You know, in the New Testament, though, there are no rules. I mean, the law's been done away with. We, We don't need the law anymore. We have Jesus. We have grace. That's not what it means. Can y'all imagine? I mean, listen to it this way, okay? Because, I mean, our, our thought is this. Jesus died to set us free from sin, right? Jesus died to forgive us. But let's put it in these terms, okay? Jesus died so you wouldn't have to follow any rules. Anybody trekking with that? Y'all think that's why Jesus died? I mean, I tried to find it in the text. I have a, uh, a program, computer program, you know. It's a, got all the Greek language and the Hebrew language. And, man, I got like 50 Bibles on that thing. And I did some searching, and I could not find it anywhere in the Bible, in any shape, form, or fashion, language, or anything, where it says that Jesus died so we wouldn't have to follow any rules. But you have no idea how many people think that. 
that they justify their sin because they're saved. That is a thought straight from the devil. Just doesn't happen. Can y'all imagine life with no rules? I mean, what are we talking about here? Is this the doctrine of divine anarchy? You know, I mean, what, what is that? Where there are no rules. I mean, we've seen in recent years where uh, riots and th- things took place and property and was destroyed and people were injured and killed and everything like that. And it was just, it was anarchy. Jesus didn't die to set us free into chaos. That's not what he died for. No rules equals chaos. No rules equals anarchy. Christ died for your chaos. That didn't even make any sense. It's kind of like we don't have to follow rules since we've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Following the rules will never save you. Following the rules won't keep you. But I'm telling you that God intends for us to be holy. And do you know how we're holy? Following his rules. So it doesn't mean, I'm not under the law. It doesn't mean there's no rules. It doesn't mean there's no rules. Secondly, it doesn't mean the law is optional. The thinking goes like this. You had to obey in the Old Testament. You don't have to obey in the New Testament. But you do anyway because you want to. Did Y'all follow the line of thinking there? What that says is that it's optional. Is that obedience is optional. Obedience to God is optional. Obedience to the law is optional. No, it's not. Think about this, and people talk about the Old Testament. Well, you know, that was back in the Old Testament, and here in the New Testament. You know, what's the greatest commandment? Okay, let's, let's just go there for a moment. What's the greatest commandment? Somebody asked Jesus that one time, and Jesus asked somebody else that one time. What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the next thing? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If God's commands are how we love him, if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. If if God's commands are how we love him, then they are not optional. You can't just say, well, I choose not to obey that today. 
The law is not optional. Another way of thinking is that the law is a past oppressor. The law is a past oppressor. Paul speaks of being slaves to sin earlier in the text. And one of the things we think about is the freedom that we have in Christ. We're free from the Old Testament moral law. And now we're under New Testament principles. That's the thinking. The law is a past oppressor. Often people will say, well, the Ten Commandments aren't in the New Testament. Well, that's silliness because, yeah, they are. They're all through the New Testament. Uh, but I, I want us to understand the argument is that we are free from the moral law. Are we indeed? Thou shalt not commit murder. We free from that? No. No. If we're free from that, what, do we, what can we do? Man, just go out and commit murder. No. In Jeremiah 31, I read this during my pastoral prayer this morning. The prophet looked forward, and by the moving of the Spirit of God, prophesied concerning a new covenant that would come. And that new covenant is what we're talking about today. It's in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says there in uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is not merely uh, how the law is written on the hearts of everyone who bears the image of God. But he's talking about the moral law. He, he's talking about that, uh, that they shall know it, and they will have it, and they will be able to live it. I mean, what law is this? It's, it's the moral law. It's not the ceremonial law, is it? The ceremonial law uh, has been done away with. Jesus becoming the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus fulfilling that ceremonial law in every way. He's not talking about that when he says, we're not under the law, like we don't have to do the sacrifices anymore. We don't have to observe the feast anymore. That's not what he's talking about. It's a question, by the way. Anytime you're reading the New Testament, anytime you're reading the Word of God, and you come across this word for law, you need to start asking yourself a question. What law? We do really need to know that. Ceremonial law, so it's important for us to realize that. What about the civil law? The civil law of Israel. Is that what he's talking about? We're no longer under the civil law of Israel? You say, well, what are you talking about with the civil law? Well, you know what? In Deuteronomy, I don't remember where it is. I think it's 18. 
but uh, you know, the parents say, "Hey, you got a you got a son that's uh, uh, that's you know back talking you, and he won't calm down, and he won't repent, and he won't turn away. Take him to the gate where the elders are, and have him stoned to death." That's the civil law. Would we practice that? No. No. You're not under law. Well, no, we're not under that law at all. Uh, you know, I mean, that law expired with the, when the state expired. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some good principles in there. All right? There's some good principles in there. For parenting. But, but I, I want us to see that it's the moral law that he's talking about. God writes the moral law on the hearts of his people. Why? Why does he do that? What do those Ten Commandments tell us? What do they reveal to us? They reveal the nature and the character of God. I will put my nature and my character in their hearts. I want them to know me intimately. I want them to not wonder what I think about any moral issue. I don't want them to wonder. God calls us to be like him. He says, be holy. I mean, y'all remember that command. Y'all remember that command? Be holy. Just generally, let me describe what that means. It means set apart for the purposes of God. Be holy. That's a command. God, what's holiness like? <clears throat> I'm glad he answered that question. Just as I am holy. That's big. I'm going to ask a question. Are any of you holy like God is holy? Do you have as your ambition to be holy like God is holy? That's what he does in us. Because when we were sinners, before we were saved, that command did not apply to us. He did not ask unredeemed people to be holy. 
They can't be. Not without him doing a work. Not without him changing them. Not without him first redeeming. That's what grace does. Paul's contention here is that grace also transforms us. And it makes us new. And it changes our hearts and our minds and our thinking concerning sin that is repulsive now. And our thinking concerning righteousness, that's my ambition. And I may fail every day, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to continue marching toward the righteousness of God in the power of God. By the grace of God. That's what he's saying. He calls us to be holy. Freedom that we have as Christians is not liberation from God's character. Instead, he calls us to himself. To be like him. To be like his son. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's talking about what it doesn't mean. Let's talk about what it does mean. What does it mean to be not be under law but under grace? Some people would say, well, it means that we're no longer under condemnation. Well, it's true that we're no longer under condemnation. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Okay. Condemnation being judgment, being wrath. I'm so glad that God, when he saved us, he poured his wrath out on Jesus Christ instead of us. Isn't that great? I'm glad there's no wrath for me. And if you're in Christ, I'm glad there's no wrath for you. Because the descriptions of wrath that I find in this Bible are not something that anybody wants to go through. So he's not saying you're no longer under condemnation. It's true, but that's not what he's talking about. That's not contextual here in this text. Instead, he's saying that we're no longer under the domination of sin and we're under the power of Powerful working of grace to do in us what we can't do ourselves. And that's to walk in righteousness. We're free from the dominion of sin and we're supported by the power of grace in order to be like his son. Morality, holiness, Godliness all flow from the work of grace by the Holy Spirit in us. We do not become those things because we have it in us to do it. We become those things because we have Him in us to do it. Isn't that great? Or catch your own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you. He's doing it. 
great news. So we look at this problem in rules. Everybody says if there wasn't any rules. Hey, kids, it's good that your parents have rules. That's good. Listen to your parents. Listen to the rules. I mean, think about for a moment that God gave rules. They're good for us. Every rule God gave us is good for us. But the problem in rules, the problem's not that our responsibility to follow those rules. That's not the problem. We have a responsibility to follow the Word of God, not to be saved, not to stay saved, but for the glory of God and for the good of the one who is commanded. The problem's not the moral law. The problem is sin. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 56, Paul says this, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear what the power of sin is? The law. Believers are not under law in the sense that God has delivered us from the power of sin. Verse 6 affirms this. And back in Romans chapter 6, where it says that, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. law has no domination over us. Sin has no power over us. We're not under law. We're under grace. And that grace has power for us. God's grace moves us. God's grace has locomotion. I can't get into all that today, but it has locomotion. It's the power of God. It's the Holy Spirit And God's grace does move in such a way and work in us in such a way that He causes us to move away from sin and toward righteousness. If that's not happening in your life, you have to ask yourself the question, have I been saved? If I'm not being transformed, if sin is not despised in me, 
If righteousness is not my desire, is it possible I haven't been forgiven because I want you to know the indicative always precedes the imperative. You must be saved to be changed. You'll never be changed to be saved. Won't happen. Augustus Toplady got this when he wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. He's talking about justification. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath. I'm not under the law. And make me pure, but I'm under grace. That's what he was thinking. What's Paul telling us? He's saying that grace is designed to answer sin in its penalty and in its power. Justification and sanctification. Grace designs not only to forgive us but to freely, just, to freely justify us, but grace is designed to transform us, to sanctify us. That's beautiful. This morning we sang a hymn by William Cooper. William Cooper was a contemporary with John Newton. Most people know John Newton as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. John Newton was actually an incredibly good friend to Cooper. Cooper, early in his life, had no confidence in his, his life and had no confidence in himself and felt dominated in a lot of different ways. And he tried multiple times to take his own life. Even after coming to know Christ, he would dip into great Great valleys of depression and be suicidal. John Newton would sit by his side at night caring for him as he went through some of these valleys. If you've ever read any of Cooper's poetry and hymns, you can identify the ones when he was in darkness. The ones where he was in depressive lows. And also the ones where he saw hope. And he wrote these words, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Listen to the third verse particularly. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. Y'all know what a fetter is, okay? Y'all use that in a sentence this week, okay? All right? 
Maybe you got some pipe on a trailer or something like that. Turn to your buddy there, maybe in the oil field or whatever. Turn to him and say, hey, let me have that fetter. Huh? Yeah, it's a chain, all right? It's a clasp on you, a chain to something. That language is being used. We're not going to get to it today. It's been used. It's talking about us being bound to sin, but not anymore. We've been loosed from it. It's no longer a fetter on us. Let thy goodness like a fetter. He's wanting grace. Y'all hearing? Bind my wandering heart to thee. Why? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave this God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. He loves us. I leave you with a question that leads into next week, into verse 16. What do you obey? Romans 6, 16 says this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to life. You're obligated to one or the other. You're responsible to one or the other. You are either a slave to righteousness or you're a slave to sin, but you cannot be a slave to both. You can't be. So what do you obey? Let me leave you with a couple of questions. Four to be exact. What do you most highly value? What do you most highly value? What do you think about by default? When you're alone, when you're by yourself, where's your mind go? What is your highest goal? To what or whom are you most committed? You know what the law does? It lets us know what sin is. Paul's kind of like, you know, if, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know what covetousness is. And I find in me all kinds of covetousness. And Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. What do you most highly value? Those are the things that he's calling us, that God's calling us to put to death in us so that he is supreme, so that he is most highly valued, so that things are not our God.
Grace is designed to save you from sin. And grace is designed to overcome sinfulness in our life. Walk in that way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this grace. This grace, Lord, that saves us. But grace, Lord, that doesn't leave us. Grace that transforms. Grace that makes new. Grace that sets free. We're all bound to something, Lord. And I pray that our hearts are bound to you. Lord, if not, let us pray that it will be. Let us pray that you will be our all in all. Let us pray that you will be our master and our savior and our God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.